1996, the British pop and R&B singer-songwriter Seal covered a song by the psychedelic rock group Steve Miller Band for a movie about Michael Jordan playing basketball with Bugs Bunny against space aliens who sucked the athletic essence from various basketball superstars. I want to fly like an eagle to the sea, fly like an eagle, let my spirit carry me. Here you go, little Bobby Glasses. Take this piece of pie and go play nicely out on your seesaw. Oh no! Bobby, look out! In the sky! It's the Piasaw! Welcome to Cracking Cryptids and Curios, where we'll be donning our fur trapping gear and paddling down the Mississippi River in search of the historic entity known as the Piasaw. This is Matt, once again joined by soon-to-be published cinema historian with a focus on depictions of werewolf transformations, Angel. I'm glad to hear that your hard work has paid off, my friend, but I must ask, so the year is 1985, Michael J. Fox runs to a bathroom and stares into a mirror. The reflection is more beast than man. His first words, geez louise, why is Teen Wolf the best werewolf transformation in cinema history? Are you asking this question because this is what I believe, or are you asking this because you believe it? No, because it's a fact. (laughs) (laughs) Because I can honestly tell you that it is not the best transformation (laughs) scene. It is actually from a little known film called an American werewolf in London, but whatever. <laughs> but in that movie, <laughs> there's no aftermath where, like, the dad keeps pounding on the door, like, Let, <laughs> I need to talk to you. What's going on? And he opens the door, and the dad is a werewolf, too. Yeah, no, that that's definitely original. I mean, they're, they're all unique in their own special way. That's why I um, specialize in this field, because uh-huh. it's so unique. So unique. Is there, then... A absolute worst transformation in your mind. And why is it Michael J. Fox and Teen <laughs> Wolf? I would not say it's Teen Wolf's uh, transformation scene because, uh, you know, comedies are always going to be great. The worst would have to be a little movie named Geely with J-Lo and, and ben, ben Affleck. You know why? Because there are no werewolves in it. <laughs> I was like, I never saw the movie and I never heard that there's a werewolf transformation in it. Exactly. Nobody talks about it because <laughs> it doesn't exist. And that movie would have been a hundred times better if it had a tr- werewolf transformation scene in it. Yeah, like uh, three quarters of the way into the movie, it becomes like Ben Affleck <laughs> becomes a werewolf and starts hunting J-Lo. I, I'm pretty sure anything would have been better than what, they <laughs> than put what out. was produced. Yeah, yes. most likely. <laughs> Werewolf transformations aside, let's take a look at some oddities in the news that are going on. This article comes from unexplainedmysteries.com. It is uh, titled, Weird Creature in India Turns Out to Be a Hoax. So I sort of wanted to highlight this article this week just because, you know, these cryptids sometimes prove to be hoaxes, and we got to keep them to task when they do. So. Yeah. The uh, article goes on to say, Photographs of a very strange creature have generated quite a stir on social media over the last few days. 
With four legs, a tail, and an armored back, and a human-like face, this bizarre-looking cryptozoological creature first appeared on social media around two weeks ago when farmers in the Indian state of Rajasthan were warned not to go out into the fields alone in case they came across it. Referred to by some as Dipida or Dipda, the peculiar beast was described as very dangerous. A glance back through the archives also revealed that the creature had previously been featured in a similar news story back in 2018, this time in India's Jagatala district, Telangana. So what exactly is this thing and where did it come from? So, I mean, in that article, even they taken claim to Cotton Eye Joe's razor there. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. The answer, as it turns out, is the creature is actually a silicone sculpture created by Italian artist Lyra Maganuso, who reportedly describes the piece as an armadillo hybrid. The photograph, it seems, has been erroneously picked up as evidence of a real creature. It just goes to show how easily something like this can become a social media phenomenon, the article concludes. So what are your thoughts, Angel, on on how this could have been proven a hoax? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, the, the fact that an artist created it is one. Not just looking at the creature. <laughs> uh, it, the artist claims it's a armadillo hybrid, but this creature looks like it just found some armadillo skin and just put it on its back. It doesn't really look like it. It's a hybrid of any kind, <laughs> like a armadillo uh, skin cape on on top of a baby doll. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, a certainly bizarre looking creature. It looks like in the picture, it looks like it's about to take a dump. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, not a not a good pose for armadillo <laughs> hybrid. Maybe he's getting ready to roll out, but w- with his huge human-like skull, I don't think he's going to roll up correctly like an armadillo. So, not a very good hybrid, most likely. Yeah, they didn't master the art like the pigs did. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean, well, they had millennia to work on that. So, <laughs> any uh, any final thoughts on armadillo hybrid, the the lesser known of the hybrids? I think it's up there with the Fiji mermaid. I think it would have, uh, instead of generate, uh, having this image, uh, you know, spread around, I think they could have taken it to like a carnival and uh, done it like a sideshow. Come see this weird human thing. Yeah, they could have hodagged it. And Yeah, and then just <laughs> charge 10 cents per yep. viewing. Yep. Could get like $3 a weekend. It'd be great. Yep. <laughs> Leaving the armadillo hybrid in the dust here, let us now hop into our canoe, fight the raging waters of the Mississippi, and keep our eyes peered to the sky as we take a deep look into the entity known as the Piasa. Now, Angel, I hope you feel snug in your beaver pelt outfit, but (laughs) rather than that fur cap that you have on, I suggest we don our detective hats this time. There is a lot to decode with this cryptid, and we may just have to sift through, you know, about two centuries worth of information (laughs) to get to the bottom of this one. Yeah. So uh, I hope you're ready. So from what I have seen, the Piasa is an entity often described as either a thunderbird or even an American dragon. It has its roots to Native American tribes located in the Mississippi River and was first described by Jacques Marquette in 1673 during his exploration with Louis Joliet of the Mississippi River. Marquette describes a giant pictograph upon a limestone cliffside near what is now Alton, Illinois. And this is a, a bit of a lengthy description, but is very much needed in the discussion of this creature. So he wrote, 
we saw upon one of them two painted monsters which at first made us afraid and upon which the boldest savages dare not long rest their eyes they are as large as a calf they have horns on their heads like those of a deer a horrible look red eyes a beard like a tiger's a face somewhat like a man's a body covered with scales and so long a tail that it winds all around the body passing above the head and going back between the legs ending in a fish's tail green red and black are the three colors composing the picture moreover these two monsters are so well painted that we cannot believe that any savage is their author for good painters in france would find it difficult to reach that place conveniently to paint them here is approximately the shape of these monsters, and we have faithfully copied it. Beyond Marquette's glaringly ethnocentric view of the painting, he describes a rather, uh, I would say, original-looking entity. We have antlers. We have a human-like face with fur mm -hmm, on the mm -hmm. jawline, a body covered in scale, and a tail that's at least twice the size of the creature's body and then ends with a fin on the end. Mm -hmm. So I think in its most basic form, maybe similar to what other people might know as the manticore of Persian legend. That's sort of the first thing that popped up in my mind. So what are your initial thoughts on the appearance of the pious angel? Initially, based on the description, you know, I was thinking some sort of like deer-like, bison-like creature, you know, mm -hmm. based on the fact that, you know, North America had bison and mm -hmm. deer in it. So I figured it would be... Something like that, and then just exaggerate the features like a long tail. You did say he 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 said he copied it, he drew it or something. Yes, that's what his um his writing said. So it's kind of interesting though. So his partner there in crime, Juliet. It's believed that Juliet was the one that really drew it, but along the way they had a canoe capsizing, and <clears throat> Juliet's entire diary got lost. Oh no! So then, yeah, some historians believe that. Marquette then tried to jot down all of Juliet's ideas in his uh, diary as well, along with the description of the pictograph. But somewhere along the way throughout history, that picture was also lost to time. It's kind of interesting that this description where they, they you know, we tried to faithfully copy it, but very, very hard to, I guess, find the, the true depiction of it. Some believe that he put it on a map that then went into a private collection, but I haven't been able to, you know, find any sort of truth behind that you know when i first heard that i immediately thought of eugene shepherd well not eugene shepherd but the story by the ex-mayor in which he had taken a picture of the hood oh yeah and then the uh the ship captain and then <laughs> and then the cats broke his phone so now we don't have a picture of the thing anymore like how yep. convenient how inconvenient for that guy to <laughs> not understand how cell phones really work too that, <laughs> the screen shatters and nope they can't get anything on it anymore yeah yeah, that was also yeah something I thought of too. Is like oh, laying the the groundwork here for a major conspiracy of this pictograph. <laughs> you know, like the the first people that record seeing it, they lose their copies of of what they drew. However, I guess keep in mind keep in mind Marquette's description of it because as we explore this creature, there's some things that change about it that really change everything. Well, I t I take it that other people. I've also come across this thing and also made their own copies, right? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, let's move on. Let's uh, let go on and look. I'm excited to unearth the mystery surrounding this entity, so let's just jump right into the nitty-gritty. Cotton Eye Joe's razor. Where did the Piasa come from? Where did it go? 
So as I mentioned, Marquette and Joliet's famous exploration of the Mississippi River brought first word back to colonizers of America in the 1670s. Pretty much since then, Americans have been arguing where the heck this pictograph has come from. Indeed, the Piasa pictograph is reported to have been the largest pictograph ever found north of Mesoamerica. And the bulk of what is written about the Piasa comes from a man named John Russell in 1836. He's a professor who wrote an article titled The Piasa, an Indian Tradition in Illinois. The story tells the tale of the Illini tribe being harassed by a flying creature known as the Piasa, which he says translates to the bird that devours man. Local chief Owatoga seemingly had a visit from the Great Spirit in a dream that told him of how he could defeat this tremendous monster. Owatoga gathered 20 of his best warriors and knew what must be done, or someone must be used as bait to draw out the Piasa, and at the right moment, the warriors would unleash hell upon the beast and bring it to its death. So Owatoga knew whoever was to be used as bait would surely lose their life, so in a display of honor, he volunteered to be the sacrifice himself. Possibly the great spirit was looking over him on that day, as his warrior's aim was true, and they brought down the Piasa before it was able to devour the chief. Before I get your comments here, Angel, the story does not end there. <laughs> so Russell was enamored by the telling of, of the Piasa and decided to investigate himself, thinking there is something more to it. He goes to the location of the pictograph, investigating the bluff. He located a cavern in which thousands of skeletons, reportedly as much as four feet deep of bones in some areas, covered the cavern floor. These remains, seemingly the discarding of the Piasa's meals, proved to Russell how deadly of a monster this was. So Russell's account of the creature emphasized the flying abilities and told really of how artful it was, seemingly a master of the sky. From that point on, Russell's retelling of the Illini tale dominates pretty much all discussion of the Piasa. I have some theories here that I found that I want to run by you and then get your opinion on and we can discuss it. So the first theory is really just Russell's Indian tradition story. The story from John Russell would indicate that it was some sort of large beast that dominated the Mississippi River. Based on that story, it would go back many, many years as for how many bodies or bones and were discarded in that cavern it had to have been there for a very long time either one entity or a multitude of them in the area the retelling of the illini story does not indicate what the creature could have been but maybe just some sort of mega predator that ruled the area so then something that sort of gets that i'm lumping into the russell's theory is something called the dinosaur theory so a author perry armstrong in his book the piasa or the devil among the indians written in 1887, looks at a multitude of things, and at the end of the book, he comes to the conclusion it could have been a dinosaur known as Ramphorhynchus. So this is a pterodactyl-like dinosaur, uh, which had a long tail, almost exactly like the depiction of the Piasa. Indeed, more recent research into the dinosaur almost backs up this claim, as it has been suggested by paleontologists that Ramphorhynchus was very adept at both diving into the water for meals and even had the body structure to be able to conquer swimming in the water as well. So what are your thoughts on the the Russell and combined dinosaur theory here? Based on what I know from science, it kind of sounds like it implies that the dinosaurs and humans were living in 
around the same time period, which doesn't mesh with what I know. The account also sounds a little odd. I mean, it <clears throat> it's uh, it's like a, okay, a, a tale of the the the, the natives hunting this giant bird-like creature down and it sounds like i don't see how that that that's not that doesn't seem like a typical tale that natives native people have told where they attack some creature yeah. that is there's no evidence of it existing and the fact that there's only only one i don't i don't buy that yeah, yeah, it's very odd, you could say. <laughs> That's, you know, it's funny though that you say that about the dinosaur theory because Armstrong in his book, his book goes a little further to help explain the details of the pictograph. First, he argues that when the indigenous Americans first came to the Americas, he argues that there were still dinosaurs living here. He's taking really the Owatoga story at face value that the chief and his men slayed a dinosaur. That relates, like, that is exactly what happened. There's no, like, metaphor. There's no higher meaning that it was just simply a, a, a true slaying of a dinosaur is what occurred. The other idea is that the natives were keeping an oral tradition alive and by repainting this creature over and over again upon the limestone bluff. But he still then, with that idea, argues that most certainly they had at some sort of time had firsthand knowledge of the beast. So that's it still lines up that they were living at the same time as the dinosaurs or somehow this specific type of dinosaur survived past you know extinction of the rest of the dinosaurs one thing that i I did find interesting though that i want to get your take on so armstrong even goes into detail on what the colors of the pictograph could translate to and how it was painted so he thinks that so by boiling the tails of beavers and combining it with the hooves of deer elk or moose, they could get a substance to mix then with earth pigments for the colors. Red would be for defiance, anger, or war. The green color would be for hope, joy, and victory. And black, he claims, is an emblem of sorrow, anguish, and death. So what do you think of this color theory sound and then anything else too that's uh, about his <laughs> humans living in Capatico with... <laughs> dinosaurs well, i mean it's it all sounds very fascinating and very creative but where does he get the the color theory from like yeah like, i didn't really he just sort of in the in the book just sort of presents it as like a blanket statement upon all native americans that these are the colors what they represent oh okay yeah. well then that just seems a little off mm-hmm. like red red will always mean this one thing yep it's always defiance it's always anger and war <laughs> I suppose in relation to Russell's story that all those colors could be extracted from it. So red being, you know, defiance and anger that to stand up to the Piasa. They went to war with it. Green, hope and joy and victory of then conquering it. And black being the, the sorrow, anguish and death of all of the other tribesmen that it had killed in the past and that they avenged. I, I guess you could, you know, english lit theory it <laughs> and just make up stuff to apply to it but so the colors represent the struggles and the triumph over the creature and and the conquering of of the wild and nature and... so <laughs> instead of having to preserve this oral tradition they just decided we're gonna paint it on this on this uh on the rock with mm-hmm. the colors and then everyone will just see everything and understand what it means immediately because all native americans understand these colors 
Yep, exactly. Every, it's, it's, I mean, according to the 1800s, they're all the same. <laughs> so one thing that I, I take out of it, though, and I find it's interesting is, so Armstrong, he's able to look at the colors of the pictograph as a representation of the Piasa, and he's able to see the symbolic portions of it. So he's he goes to the trouble of explaining the meaning of each color, but... Armstrong is unable to see the pictograph as anything beyond symbolic. He only sees it as the possibility of being a, a real creature. Right. So he, in his descriptions of the of the dinosaur, the flying dinosaur as well, he never says that there's those colors attributed to the to that dinosaur. But he's okay with the colors on the pictograph, and it never he never like mends those two I guess concerns yeah. together. Like he's able to on one level see the symbolic meaning of it, but also only the literal meaning of everything. Interesting. To me, that just makes his theory look bad. <laughs> it makes it look worse. And you know the whole dinosaur thing. I, I'm not. I'm not uh, on that boat yet to uh, say it was a dinosaur. Maybe, was... but I don't think it was. Yeah. Next theory is what is called the water panther theory. So this would contend that people have just misinterpreted everything about the creature. One of the main issues with the Piasa pictograph is that there really isn't any original copy of the drawing that exists, like I, I said. So supposedly Marquette and Juliet both drew it, uh, what it looked like, but Juliet lost his diary when a canoe capsized, and Marquette's didn't seem to survive history. The big issue with Marquette's original description uh, is that it did not include wings, which have become so prevalent in the story of the Piasa. Indeed, Armstrong, he even talks about this in his book, and pretty much just comes to the conclusion that Marquette must have simply forgotten to write or mention anything about the wings. Like, it was clearly just his error. This thing has always had wings, is Armstrong's argument. It's like, the, the, the wings are the most prominent thing, but I'm not going to mention it. Exactly. Like, <laughs> apparently, Marquette was just a dumbass, I, is, is Armstrong's opinion, I would guess. He so, explains, even down to the detail of, oh, it looks like a, a man's face and a lion beard, you know, but no wings. I don't know. Uh, the wings just slipped my mind. Know, it just slipped his mind, yep. <laughs> Maybe Marquette did not know what wings were. He had never seen them before. He did not know how to describe them. This thing That's looks the only thing like I could a, think of. <laughs> this thing looks like a, a fish. Why would it have wings? I'm just not going to mention it. <laughs> I know. It has really large fins on the side of it. <laughs> I guess one idea then is that since the image would have been repainted over and over again throughout history because the, the paint would just eventually come off due to the weathering, that possibly at some point wings were added into the pictograph that, uh, were, that Marquette never saw. For the Water Panther theory, though, really this would be that everyone is just wrong and that the pictograph has just been misinterpreted by everybody and it's truly what's called an underwater panther, like one of our theories related to the hodag. Uh, the website nativelanguages.org describes the water panther as a powerful mythological creature, something like a cross between a cougar and a dragon. Water panther is a dangerous monster that lives in deep water and causes men and women to drown. The legends of some tribes describe water panther as the size of a real lynx or mountain lion, while in others, the beast is enormous. Water panther has a very long prehensile tail, which is often said to be made of copper. Details of the monster vary from community to community, but in many stories, water panthers are described as furry with either horns or deer antlers and a sharp saw-toothed back. 
the mention of copper kind of just kind of gives it away. I was I was thinking that the people in that area uh, use copper for a lot of their things. So it makes sense that an underwater panther would be something in their cosmogony. So it just, I, I'm kind of leaning towards the, yeah, everyone is wrong. It's just an underwater panther. You guys are idiots. But <laughs> yeah, it, it would have been something that was important to the people that lived there. And, you know, someone took it upon themselves to, or many people took it upon themselves to depict it on the limestone there. Yeah. I mean, is is that hard to believe? I I don't think it is. But as we're gonna see, well, I mean, it was very much so for a lot of people. I mean, according to Marquette, he even thought, uh, you know, these people couldn't have painted this thing. Yeah, it, yeah. As he says, the savages. There's no way that they could have done it. Even a French person would have had a hard time uh, <laughs> depicting this creature on on the bluff face. I don't know. All some interesting things so far about the Piasa. The next theory is what I've entitled the, the don't trespass theory. So this was the first thing that popped into my mind really when researching it. And I did find that others had the same thought. So this needs a bit of a backstory. In the area of Illinois, there was a vast native city that rivaled many European cities in size called Cahokia. So the peak of the city was during the early 1100s, but was most likely settled, archeologists believe, in at least 600 and lasted until around the mid 1300s. So the city was over six square miles and had more of a population than London at the time. And some archaeologists believe that the population could have been upwards of 40,000 people, which would have made it the largest ever North American city until Philadelphia surpassed it, uh, surpassed that number in the 1780s, which shows the area the pictograph is located uh, has been inhabited for a very long time. So the idea is that where the pictograph was painted, was sort of like a marker that you were entering someone's territory. The area is typically attributed to the Miami or Illini tribes, so it could be seen as a warning for others who are not part of those tribes, or if it even goes back to the uh, Cahokia times, that you're entering that group's territory. This goes on to sort of include that, sort of like the Hodag, how we likened it to the creature, the, the entity known as the Mishupishu. The Miami have a figure in their own lore called the True Tiger. So this was a powerful mythological water monster, something like a cross between a giant lynx and a dragon. So again, according to NativeAmericanLanguages.org, or NativeLanguages.org, its English name is a bit of a misnomer. So since tigers were not native to North America, the true translation of the Miami, Illinois name is actually real lynx, although the monster is more tiger-like in size. So according to legend, true tigers live at the bottom of lakes and cause people to drown. A true tiger is usually described as having the body of an oversized lynx with pale fur, antlers, armored scales, and sharp spines running down its back. Very similar to the water panther in, in description and beliefs of what it stood for. So what are your thoughts then on the, the don't trespass theory of it being maybe there was no, as Russell believed or Armstrong believed, a physical creature. It was just simply a, a warning sign for others entering the territory. That's 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 very plausible. I don't see why. I mean, there's there's no reason to say it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, it, yeah. It's hard to argue, I guess, against that, right? Yeah. Whereas, like uh, Armstrong's dinosaur theory, it is easy to argue against that. 
Uh, right. Th- there's a lot of, you know, suspension of disbelief that goes along with it. Just the idea of it being a, um, you know, a, a marker saying you're entering somebody's territory and then match that with the entity being related to, you know, causing people to drown. The way to get there up the, you know, through the Mississippi River, you you don't want to be trying to get somewhere and then you see a creature that is related to the drowning of individuals and you got to cross paths with it. It's um, a, a good warning sign, I would think, for people traveling on water. Yeah. Those are the theories that I was able to locate. Do you have anything else to add to our Piasa theory extravaganza we have going on? I have a lot to add. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know where to start. Most of my information is going to come during the rubric of of power. So I'm just going to mention that there is another theory of where the Piasa came from. These people just like Marquette believe that the native people were not um, smart enough or advanced enough or whatever the hell we want to call it to paint the thing. Um, They believe it was Chinese, early Chinese explorers that um, yikes, (laughs) (laughs) uh, a theory proposed by Gavin Menzies uh, from a book of his called 1421 China made a, a great, uh, what do they call it? Seafaring adventure to the Americas way before Columbus did. And for some reason they targeted that specific location that yeah, is now they, known as they bold eyed on Alton. <laughs> <laughs> like oh, we've heard stories of this. We're going straight to Alton. And they crossing paint- the Rockies, we're going to the Mississippi. And they painted this creature that is to them, to these people, they say it's a Chinese dragon. It is not an underwater panther. It is not. It doesn't have wings. It's not the the creature described mm-hmm. by Russell. It is yep. a Chinese dragon, and and I guess you know that's that. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, there's a lot more to it, but I'll talk about it later. <laughs> so I'll I'll save my displeasure of that until the rubric <laughs> of power. Then. So at some point in time, the Piasa most likely in the late 1700s or mid 1800s, the bluff was destroyed and the pictograph along with it. So the limestone was seen as much more valuable than the pictograph and it was mined. So Perry Armstrong mentions in his book that the Illinois State Prison was built in Alton and that prisoners were used to mine the limestone. And eventually it was mined so much that completely destroyed the pictograph. Reportedly, the pictograph was also used as target practice so there is many times this came up in research that the local natives seemingly feared the creature so much that it was seen as an act of bravery to shoot the creature to show you could stand up to it. So just shooting the pictograph, uh, either bullets, arrows, anything, it was really a, almost a ceremony of trying to keep the creature at bay and have safe passage on the Mississippi River in that area. As far as John Russell, I hate to say this, but there seems to have been even more similarities to the Hodag than just its possibility of it being a water panther. What? It turns out, you know, it turns out shockingly, John Russell's story that has helped shape the entire Piasa mythos as we know it was just made up. <laughs> In 1887, apparently a good year for Piasa productions of books, <laughs> historian <laughs> W. McAndrews claims that he talked with Russell and 
uh, John stated that it was just all made up for his story. And then even with that admission, it never stopped Russell's story from dominating the lore surrounding this creature. So it's almost like Shepard's hodag that after he said it was fake, people still wanted to see it. Yeah. But in relation to this one, Russell says that it was his story was made up, but it may have been harder for, you know, it's sort of like retractions in, in news stories. It's usually much harder for the the information following the, like a correction than to get to the people and make people realize that it was false than it is to first get that message out. That's a, so, that's a fascinating phenomenon. It even happens on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> the <laughs> the um, social court is easy to make its decision <laughs> instantly, and then uh, the news cycle moves so fast, especially now, that it's hard to even keep up with any sort of retractions or corrections. Yeah. Over the years, the Piasa has been uh, recreated in the area and is actually still in Illinois. You can go to uh, in Alton. Um, it has been, uh, I think, as early as the 1900s, people started to repaint it or they attempted to put metal signs up on the on bluff faces there. So it is has been recreated with wings. So even the most current iteration going by the John Russell story. Any any thoughts on where we're at now as far as where the Piasa has gone? Well, this... This one's interesting to me because it, to me, it seems like we have witnessed the birth of a new cryptid. Like we've seen the evolution of what was once something that belonged to the indigenous people. And Mm -hmm. it just changed so much. You know, there's, there was never any wings on this creature. Now we have this completely new creature. And it's still a tribute. It's still uh, linked to the Native Americans. They're they're linking it to a Thunderbird, but I I don't think it should belong to that group either. I think it should yeah. be its own thing. I mean, you can yeah. see you can see a picture of that um, the Piasaw, the recreation of it, and it just it's it's unlike anything anything else that I've seen depicted. Yeah, and it's huge too. The current yeah uh, reconstruction of it, you know, in in Marquette's story of it, his uh, writings saying it's the size of the calf i take that as that was the size of like the actual picture it wasn't the entire like face of the cliffside like the current iteration is yeah um and in marquette's there are two of them and currently now there's only and really of all depictions ever since there's only been one that is just mega sized yeah painting on, on the on the rock it's reminiscent again of the hodai you know this mm-hmm. this thing didn't exist and then they just made it up and it's like we we just witnessed the birth of a cryptid so we have these the hodag and the piasaw two completely original things that didn't exist before that yeah i i do like that sort of take on it and it's um i guess sort of really interesting too how it's linked so much to one singular person so like with the hodag with eugene Shepard, that was really all his he was the driving force behind yeah. that and in, in this instance, too, John Russell, very much the driving force of the, the Piasa. And I think even, uh, I think you could say the intrigue around it as well yeah. stems from, from his storytelling. Because that was really the story that people heard first. But probably very unlikely that normal person of the time would have heard uh, Native American oral storytelling of, uh, you know, of this creature. If those people were even still around at, you know, at that time. Yeah. One interesting thing, too, that's that we looked at in our research there was a a sort of like a compendium book of i think it was called the family magazine and it was sort of just this like giant publication of random stuff like i think in their 
intro to it. They wanted to just try to include as much information as possible to try to get out to people to read. And yeah. it included like everything, like cooking, things about bugs, things about trees, things about uh, pots and pans. Like it, it was like, I think, 500 pages long, too. Yeah. Uh, Russell's story was included in that publication. It also included some other like mysteries of antiquity, like things in, in like Michigan, some oddities that archaeologists claimed that they found, or uh, some things even stemming to the Phoenicians being in uh, North America. So a call back to J. Michael and his Phoenician domesticated apes. Well, I mean, there was a book. It was it's titled The Records of Ancient Races by McAdams, as you mentioned earlier. The one that's uh, pretty much called out and, and confirmed from Russell that it was all fake. Yeah. Um, so that book was an attempt to, I guess, record the origins of the, the, the indigenous people in the Americas, or at least in that area, in the, in the Mississippi area. I guess at that time, nobody really had a theory, so they were all over the place. Uh, they would suggest that maybe, maybe <laughs> these people came from India, Maybe they came from Egypt. Maybe they were Phoenicians. <laughs> they were, they throw they threw in all those names. They even threw in Chinese. I mean, it was I was just like, well, pick one guy. Uh, it has to be everyone <laughs> but the people that were already there. <laughs> yeah, it's like they clearly had to have come from one of these places. <laughs> all of their clay art looks like Egyptian and Indian and Chinese, and it's like okay, but and then know. and then really. Does it? I, I would argue that it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even even the, the, the current Paisa painting doesn't look like a Chinese dragon to me. I don't I don't know what these people are talking about. Yeah, a lot of mystery surrounding the Paisa, but I think we cracked a lot of it as far as it, you know, being a made up story by John Russell. To, he, was, he was a professor and it was probably just a creative writing exercise for him uh, <laughs> to maybe get his students talking. I don't know. I don't know. I, some, I, there's a part of me that thinks that there's some uh, kind of like an ill intent in there, you know, as if to say, you know, nobody's going to question what I write mm -hmm. because who's going to talk to these people, the, the, the indigenous <laughs> folks? Who's going to fact check me? <laughs> exactly. One of the things that I saw, too, and it was um, it was actually in Armstrong's book because he was like head over heels for this um, chief Blackhawk of the Sauk Indians. And he, I mean, he goes on to, to just like, I would say, kiss Blackhawk's ass as far as like the, the way that he presents him being like almost, he describes him as he wasn't even really a, a Native American. He was like ab above other Native Americans. It was almost like a, a slur to call him a Native American. The way wow. that he presented it, it was very odd. But supposedly Blackhawk's father, his name was also Piasa spelled differently than how <laughs> Russell related it for his story. So mm -hmm. Armstrong, I believe, like made maybe the argument that uh, that was where the name came from, that maybe Armstrong had also heard of that and sort of co-opted it for, his, for the name of the creature. Another thing that I saw, too, was that maybe at one time there was a, a stream going through Alton, sort of like a river, uh, but I think in the early 1900s it ended up getting landfilled and uh, for to be able to lay pipes down. Um, and mm -hmm. that stream or river was called Piasa. And Russell maybe took the name from there. but Or he just made it up, too. Because <laughs> he, he certainly made up the, he, he the, up a lot of the meaning of it, of it being the, the devourer <laughs> of man. 
Yeah, I'm going to get into that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we're chomping out the bit here. Let's just jump into the rubric of power. So I'll let you lead off with what you feel the power of the Piasa is. Okay. And uh, so, uh, I'll interrupt here because I'm, um, I'm interested to know because you haven't been quite fond of the flying creatures before. So I'm interested <laughs> to see uh, how it goes now. I, I didn't notice that. <laughs> okay. I think specifically um, with Mothman, you said like it fr it flies <laughs> and like eh. <laughs> that's kind of cool. I was well, I was gonna start off with it's supposed to eat men and that's it. <laughs> Man, you're hard to please. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big bird, and only one of them existed, and it was killed by the native people, according to John Russell. That whole account is made up, so who knows what it's supposed to do. Here's what I wrote down. One means it needs work. Zero means it's non-existent. As the bird, it's supposed to devour people, but it's also supposed to be big. Meh. I gave it a zero. <laughs> you gave it a, a meh zero? Oh my yeah, gosh. it's got no power. It's just, if, if we treat the devourer of men thing as fact, it's just like any other animal. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just a big one. Yeah. A big dinosaur, I guess. <laughs> uh-huh. For my looking at it, so like much of history and how it has wronged this entity, I'm going off of Russell's account. So he attributes it to the power of flight, uh, which for seemingly such a large creature, it has been able to master the skies which I thought is rather neat, even if it's just a, a storytelling like mechanism. It has been said that its talons were able to be strong enough and large enough to pick up people off the ground. So I guess that gives it sort of a, a one-up over some others. <laughs> if it was a flying dinosaur, it was able to survive extinction until 20 people ganged up to kill it. Kind of a sad <laughs> ending for the Piasa, <laughs> able to survive millennia and then killed by a bunch of guys. The end of a creature due to humanity. Um, <laughs> Common thing. You know, unlike other creatures we have investigated, there doesn't seem to be really anything abnormal about it as far as it doesn't shoot fire. It doesn't, I guess, fly as fast. It doesn't cry <laughs> as much as that baby. <laughs> it doesn't, um, you know, fly as fast as the Mothman was accredited with flying. I think if memory serves like over around 100 miles per hour. It was just, yeah. I guess, an apex predator of the skies. I guess I differed a little bit. I gave it a two, just adequate, because I guess maybe I have, I have a soft spot of it. It, it was a dinosaur. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> I'm, I guess, uh, humoring. I'm humoring that Yeah, that theory. giving it the benefit of the yeah. doubt. So if it was a dinosaur, <laughs> uh, cool. But a two for power. <laughs> adequate. Sure, sure. <laughs> so then how about detectability? Very interested in this one. <laughs> so this is quite interesting. I I feel like the everything about the Piasaw is more surrounding its origins of the painting, not really the actual creature itself. Yeah, it, it is... seems no one gives a uh, shit about <laughs> the creature. It's all about the pictograph. <laughs> it's the closest to never existing I've come across. In fact, with the original artwork gone, no one can really know what it would have what it was supposed to look like for real. It's all speculation. Yeah. So it could could very well be an actual creature, but because the original art is gone, it just goes undetected now. And people are looking for a creature with wings when it's not or whatever. 
Yeah, it's like it's like history has been playing a game of telephones and trying to recreate the you know the image based off of uh, what he wrote. And I mean, if you give that description to a hundred different people, you're gonna get a hundred different drawings of what that thing could have looked like. Yeah. And you know, with for better or worse, of that, that darn Jesuit explore, explorer Marquette, <laughs> for him and Joliet to lose their depictions of it either for this ranking helps or, uh, or hurts the creature <laughs> depending on how you look at it so that's yeah, it's it's neat taking all that into account i give it a 3.9999 oh repeating. my gosh not quite <laughs> enough to get there to the four <laughs> can never get a four <laughs> the way that i looked at it if this is something that relates back to the times of the native american city cahokia this could put the pictograph back to the 600s and all that we really have is the pictograph. Marquette paddles his way into the picture a thousand years later, if it was made in the 600s, and begins this, you know, winding tale of what the hell is going on. John Russell makes crap up that derails all of history uh, of the creature <laughs> for centuries. And, you know, really all we have is secondhand accounts after that of, of the pictograph or interpretations of Marquette's writing. Since there is no physical evidence of this creature, even if, say, Russell's story was true after uh, the chief and his warriors killed the creature, you know, no part in that story of what they could have done with a giant bird very <laughs> yeah. much would have been a huge part of the story, I think, of, of what came with to the uh, from the remnants of that creature. Uh, a huge trophy, I would argue, if you're able to down that creature <laughs> since it was such a feared entity. Um, yeah. Nothing ever comes from that, so... Uh, because of that, because, you know, there's, like you said, the pictograph is gone. Every, it's all gone. There's no, Russell's story was fake. I gave it, I guess I sold my soul out in this one. I gave it a four in detectability. I'm okay with that. Ooh. <laughs> oh, man. Absolutely undetectable. Only Marquette <laughs> and Joliet were able to detect it, I guess. <laughs> and even then, the, the powers of that bee said, you can't keep this painting, the drawing that you made. Yep. <laughs> arguments of even who drew it everybody in the world apparently has claimed to have drawn this thing but no one's yep. for sure i don't i don't know how about the lore and mystique possibly uh, a very strong suit for the piasa for the mystique and the lore i'm going to go into everything we've uncovered because this thing's there's so much of it you mentioned the john russell story it deals with uh, the native americans hunting the creature and felling it and conquering it. John Russell actually gives them the Native Americans credit for painting this thing. But everyone else just uh, believes that these um, people were not savvy enough to paint this thing. So they attribute, they either say it was, uh, must have been an older people yep. that existed before them that painted it. Or we have the people that believe that there is uh, the Chinese that did it. Damn. Interestingly enough, Marquette, this is, uh, so I'm going to go into the whole Chinese theory part of it because I have a book called Chasing Dragons written by the two um, people that are really putting out this theory that the Paisal is Chinese in, in origin. It's funny that Marquette lost his, uh, the painting, the drawing he made in the Lachin Rapids in, in the St. Lawrence River. Lachine being French for the French term for China. 
And then they're like, hmm, what a curiously named uh, Rapids. <laughs> oh my gosh is this like already it has like undertones of like um some sort of nicholas cage movie of like putting all the theory like words together to decode this yeah and i thought you know that is they're, they're right it is curiously named so i looked it up and according to wikipedia it says that it, it was named it was given that name in 1667 in mockery of its then owner, René Robert Cavalier de la Salle, who explored the interior of North America, trying to find a passage to China. Mm-hmm. So that's the only connection to China that that river had. That has nothing to do with the Chinese explorers. Uh, goddamn Northwest Passage. <laughs> <laughs> unless, unless you know, you want to claim that Wikipedia is uh, trying to cover it up or whatever. <laughs> I'm not above that, but... <laughs> The, the original painting lacked wings, and even though everyone calls it a Piasaw bird, the Wikipedia lists it as a dragon, mm-hmm. curiously enough. Mm-hmm. And, of course, dragons are either European, and if they're European, they have wings. But if they're not, if they're wingless, they must be Chinese, is the reasoning of these authors. So no really? other culture, no older, <laughs> no no other culture can have a dragon, especially a dragon without wings, unless it's Chinese. Wow. <laughs> yeah. They're all in on the China theory, and and apparently looked at no other cultures besides European and Chinese. <laughs> so so interestingly enough, John Russell made up a lot of stuff about everything. I'm pretty sure he made up the the chief Owatoga. Yeah, I tried to look into it. I could not find any sort of uh, written uh, account of this gentleman. And 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 you mentioned this earlier. He he says that the word paisa means in the Ilni language. It means the bird that devours men. However, these the the authors have um, they're friends with a linguist named Carl Maste who his research led him to conclude that in the original Indian language, Piazal actually referred to a water elf or dwarf, or in other words, little people. And they use that to kind of say, hey, maybe the word Piazal, meaning little people, was actually referring to the Chinese explorers and not the creature itself. And they use the fact that, hey, I guess I've seen a short Chinese man once, so I'm, we're assuming all Chinese people are short or whatever. Oh, my God. My jaw almost hit the table. <laughs> and, and I'm looking at the, uh, the, the, my encyclopedia of cryptid creatures where it lists the Piasaw, and it gives us a little bit more. It says that the Cree, the Algonquian Cree, have a word Piasu. I don't know how mm-hmm. to say it which is supposed to mean tr- Thunderbird. The Ojibwa have Benesi, large bird, and Kickapoo, Paisa, means cat. To the Miami and Peoria, Paisa means dwarf. While to the Meskawaki, Paishawuk were little people. So, in other words, there's a lot of very similar sounding words like Paisa or Paisa and all the ones I listed out. And they... Even though they're similar sounding, they have different meanings. Little people versus cats. Yeah. Versus... versus what was the one attributed to Thunderbird? The, the, the Cree one. one. The Cree? Okay. Yeah. So... It, yeah. I mean, I, completely I think, different, like, <laughs> concepts behind the word. Yeah. So, I don't think it's it's conclusive to say, oh, a pious song meant this. But, unfortunately, 
they also met with somebody in one of their travels that told them that it's actually not pronounced Piasa. It was a Chinese person, by the way. He says it's not pronounced uh, Piasa. It's pronounced Pai Shui, which is which is known to guard tombs, spelled P-I-X-U-I. So I looked this up, and this is how it's written in the book, and it turns out that that's actually a misspelling. It's actually P-I-X-I-U, and the pronunciation is something like Pishua, Pishu, or something like that. And that creature is the one that guards tombs, which is also depicted with having the head of a lion and wings. So it kind of contradicts their argument that this creature was a Chinese dragon that was wingless, but now they're trying to attribute it to this guardian of tombs, uh, this Chinese word that represents this creature that has wings. And and <laughs> so, the depiction does not have the head of a lion either, which very much hurts it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's 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 like they, they're picking and choosing the things that fit for them. And apparently there's another meaning of Paisa, which means dragon. And they went with that one, too. They said, hey, it means dragon. So we're on the right track. But I'm like, just a few chapters earlier, you guys were going with it meant water elves or little people. So which one do you want? Do you want Paisa to mean the people that drew it? Or do you want it to represent the creature? Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. if you're going to go with one, you can't go with both. You can't say, oh, it means dragon. And it also means little people. So the Chinese were so smart. They picked the word that represented both them and the creature they drew. It just doesn't add up. Gosh, I'm just trying to think, too, of how difficult that journey would have been for those Chinese explorers. So my understanding of a lot of these explorations by the Europeans in the area, they were often accompanied by a native speaker that knew their language and then could also help translate, you know, for the the natives of the area. And that was much easier because there were a lot of, you know, you know, French, Spanish, um, English, what have you, uh, people living in America that... Uh, those natives could understand that language easier. The Chinese one, how did they have anyone that could have helped, you know, uh, in aiding well, their journey here? <laughs> well, not only that, but everyone, you know, says there's no evidence of this. But it just so happens because when when the when the uh, the Chinese explorers went back to China, um, something happened with the emperor, and and he destroyed all evidence. <laughs> Oh my of this trip and all their ships so, but according to the authors and i'm gonna name them now um mark nicholas and laurie bonner nicholas and according to the authors they have there's one remaining diary written in chinese that uh details their trip to the americas and I believe they was also supposed to detail the the, the creation of the Piasaw creature, but it was in Chinese and there's no known um, translation of it. In fact, in their introduction to the book, to the the book um, um, Chasing Dragons, it mentions how even the Chinese scholars have trouble had trouble translating it, so they were not able to translate it. So somehow, Laurie Bonner Nicholas somehow developed the method to translate ancient Chinese, or at least older Chinese than current, uh, the current format, and somehow managed to translate this book. I did not acquire a copy of this book because I'm not entirely sure of its authenticity. I don't know how accurate the translation is, but I'm re I can read the um, samples from, from the 
from the Kindle store. And, I mean, there's no way of knowing if any of what's written is accurate or not. There's no reviews. There's nobody in there saying, hey, I have this book in Chinese. And, yeah, it's totally right. <laughs> so she could have written anything and said, yeah, this proves the Piasol was a thing. <laughs> she could have taken the John Russell route. Who the hell is going to fact check me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and here's my favorite part. They have, like, a section in the beginning where they have mysteries and then they say by the end of this book we have answers for all these mysteries and sure enough there's a chapter at the end of the book where they reiterate the mysteries and then and then they show the answers kind of like a summary of their findings and this is my favorite mystery number two why did the population of the mississippi valley suffer a, deci a decimation in the mid 1400s um i don't think you mentioned this but th that area with um, the the cahokia yeah. people it was, it was, there was a lot of people living there. Yeah. It was a yeah, large to, population. Uh, possibly 40,000 people. Yeah. So, so they, they addressed this. What happened to the population? How is it that the Chinese were able to go there and do whatever they needed? And I guess not get stopped by these mm -hmm. the 40,000 people. So their answer is a scheme by a Taoist priest to introduce a minor epidemic of smallpox to Cahokia to destabilize the Mississippian culture went terribly awry. <laughs> what? So, so they're essentially so saying genocide? that the smallpox <laughs> thing happened with the Chinese, not even the Europeans. Mm. <laughs> I can't. I mean, I don't. Did <laughs> I can't? It doesn't make why. Did they ever actually explain or theorize why the Chinese went there? Did they just go there to go there, or are they just <laughs> claiming that oh, that knowledge was lost? We'll never know. If they do, I, I haven't come across <laughs> it because I haven't read this book in depth because it's kind of hard to read it uh, cover to cover while keeping a straight face. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying to think of like what what would be the purpose of any of it like why would these chinese explorers come all this way go to what is now alton illinois mess around in the mississippi river area and and then whatever they, they spread smallpox amongst the cahokia <laughs> city and then paint their own misrepresented entity on a limestone <laughs> face and then leave like like, <laughs> okay, Chinese explorers, we out. And then they leave. <laughs> I, uh, the, next, the next one is even better. It says, mystery number three. Is there any other evidence, as claimed by Menzies and others, that the fleet of Chinese Admiral Zhang He visited North America in the 1400s? You know what their evidence is? The Piasau painting itself is evidence. <laughs> My the, God. The painting that's no longer there, by the way. <laughs> and thousands of miles from the western coast. <laughs> Not only that, but the, but the authors of have recreated the painting of what they believe it really looked like. And they tried to make it look as Chinese as possible. They made it like mm -hmm. these two dragons, you know, typical Chinese dragons. They put like Chinese characters in the in the center of it. It's uh, it's pretty wild. Another thing Marquette just must have missed, not noticed <laughs> on that cliff face. <laughs> what are all these markings? And eh, I'll leave them out. I don't, no one needs to know about that crap. <laughs> and 
Here's a bonus fact. Carl Shooker, I don't know if you remember him. Carl Shooker's back? <laughs> Carl Shooker's back. Did he, did he uh, co-opt somebody else's time to explain <laughs> his findings? <laughs> well, I don't know. He wrote a book on dragons. And it was referenced in the, the, the wiki page for uh, the Piasal bird. But I couldn't uh, uh, obtain a copy of this book. But if I had, I'm sure he would have written about the time he had lunch with this guy who totally discovered it. That's exactly what I thought. <laughs> and, and handed him over all his research. Here's everything I was able to locate on the Piasal. Get it out there. <laughs> I'm Carl Schroeder. Goodbye. <laughs> It's like um like a whistleblower. That's how I see Carl Sugar. <laughs> He's like the, this this uh, journalist, you know, breaking stories. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this there's so much to go into about this book that I'm not going to. But if you guys want to, you know, spend or waste like four ninety nine, four dollars ninety nine cents, you can get it on Kindle. Uh, Chasing dragons. <laughs> uh, there's just there's so much like left in the air as far as like the the reasoning of like that's what i'm hung up on is why these yeah. chinese explorers would do this why would they paint this or or really for that matter why would any of these ancient like explorers like bullseye straight to this part of the mississippi and like seemingly take and- take it over and uh, I don't know, and then paint this thing, which is not exactly like any sort of representation. It ha- it's like modified, of <laughs> course. I don't know, and, and that'd not be the only, only evidence too <laughs> that they're ever there. And not not only that, but it's like if you do something like that, like if you go to another country or whatever, and you want to place your mark, like your flag or whatever, that usually implies that hey, we're taking over. We're gonna be back later, and yeah. you know. And kind of rule over you guys. That never really happened. But I guess because the, the emperor destroyed their fleet. So. Yeah, 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 I was going to say, that was their cover story. The emperor said, nope, we're not going back. And then those guys were like, damn it, we painted that those dragons on the limestone. And now it's going to be lost to history. People are going to question this forever. Yeah. So I think... No, I was, I was just going to say, because I'm all worked up about this, <laughs> um, <laughs> as far as like the, the natives that were actually living there, then they were seemingly just okay with it being depicted up there and yeah. then left it and well, and then know, would they're, have they're repainted, so pr- like to kept up the painting of it too, over hundreds of years. <laughs> There's, they were devastated by smallpox and they're just too primitive to fight back anyways, <laughs> apparently. <Yep>. So, <laughs> so all, all they could do was like, let's just keep painting this and maybe the smallpox will go away. It's just so stupid. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I feel like this brought so much joy to my life reading about this <laughs> and learning about this because it expands on so much. Because now I get to learn about the lovely Gavin Menzies and I need and and find out about his theories as to why the Chinese came to the Americas and and how they helped uh, the Italian uh, Renaissance uh, jumpstart that. You know, <laughs> gosh, the Chinese had their footprint in everything around the world. Apparently, and you know, it just. Looking it up, you can find any, uh, you know, the Chinese were in the Americas before Columbus. The Indians were in Americas before Columbus. The the uh, the Africans were in the Americas before Columbus. I could find an article on each of those things. Mm-hmm. So everything's everything's up in the air. You know, it's all yeah. possible. Well, even even going back to that, um, I mentioned it earlier that uh, the Family Magazine in the 1800s 
had articles in there about ancient peoples come like the phoenicians yep. coming to the americas the phoenicians and, and just waltzing around north america leaving their pottery <laughs> and then disappearing it, it, it based on what i've read it just seems like the americas were populated by the indians the chinese the phoenicians and the africans and then they just left uh-huh. for some reason it was the the hub of the world and <laughs> before it was the, known as that yep. and then everyone left and then never told anybody about it <laughs> And that the Europeans were the last to find out. <laughs> I don't know. So with all of that being said, I gave it a outstanding four, a four. for Mystique and Loria. Uh, uh, just <laughs> probably would have gone higher if the rubric of power allowed it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in my looking at it, so the, for me, the whole idea of Marquette and Juliet, you know, paddling down the Mississippi and coming along this thing, it's just a really neat idea. It's a cool concept to me. And they even, Marquette stated in his writings that it scared him. Just the depiction of it, seeing it there, it frightened him. So for me, it epitomizes the idea of exploration. So finding some, you know, foreign intriguing symbol that even uh, in his tellings of the the locals were afraid of it as well. So <laughs> even, well, he didn't believe it was them that painted it. But if it was them, even the creators were afraid of this uh, pictograph. And I think that the whole historical aspect of their exploration helps build the mystique, as even in Marquette's journal, that I suggest everyone take a look at. It's, it's very uh, interesting stuff to read. He describes plants and animals that, you know, at that time, most Europeans had never even seen before. And the whole idea yep. of uh, Joliet losing his journal and Marquette's depiction of it being lost to history helps, you know, even build up the aura and mystery of this uh of the Piasa entity. So John Russell's telling of it, even if it did bastardize the entity forever with his fake story, uh, it built this story around it that I believe helped nudge historians to take a look at it in the late 1800s. In exploring it, uh, this creature, it became evident that specifically white historians were just so confused by this pictograph. So (laughs) time and time again, it became like, Specifically, how could these peoples, the savages, as they say, create such a work of art? And there were theories about the mound people that historians of that time thought were much more civilized than the natives of their day. And it had to have been, you know, that older entity that created this. No way could any <laughs> contemporary Native American make that. It is, I think, the the first entity that we've looked at that has theories of it, you know, dating back to 130 years ago. Like people have been trying to figure this thing out for a long time. If you look at it, just how ethnocentric everything was. So yeah, ethnocentrism, for those of you that don't know, it's when you apply your own culture as a frame of reference to then try to understand the beliefs of other cultures. For instance, in Perry Armstrong's book, he goes on and on about how uh, the Piasa creature, it must be related to the Bible because the <laughs> depictions of it, you know, the they believe that it was like a lion's body and things like that. It's there's several passages in that text that, you know, has depictions of creatures like that. Yeah. Uh, he also goes on to say that chief Oratunga's sacrifice is like a lamb of God sacrifice. So relating it once again to Christianity and then no, no, never mind that it was just John Russell's made up story passed as fact. <laughs> and that was also based on applying pretty much his own cultural viewpoints to the native people. So <laughs> to me, it was like, ethnocentric inception it was just layers and layers of (laughs) of ethnocentrism 
Another thought I had was that white historians seem to treat these unexplainable native things like how some researchers on, you know, modern day History Channel show explain massive buildings in antiquity. Rather than aliens being the root of all, in the 1800s, peoples believed that it was dinosaurs that were everything. <laughs> Another callback to MDW, uh, Mongolian Deathworm, Rory Andrews' explorations in Mongolia, which gave the Western world a look into the Deathworm in the early 1900s. He was there for dinosaur bones. It's all about those dinosaur bones. So on top of that, and if the lore actually goes back to it being, um, you know, a water panther or true tiger, similar to the Hodag, the, as we theorized, then, which I believe it does, that it goes back to those entities. That's just another bonus of the lore. So for me, differed a little bit. I gave it a three in lore and mystique. Um, I think maybe just because of the disinformation on it that has been spread through uh <laughs> through history that that the, the lore the majority of the mystique on it is based in lies which is still i guess <laughs> lore that could be attributed to it but i settled on above average lore so a three good enough for me <laughs> how about again the downfall of everything the cunning and intelligence <laughs> how'd you look at that pretty much as, as you would think it we don't know anything about the creature. We know everything about what everyone thinks about mm -hmm. who made it and who painted it. I personally think, as you've mentioned before, I think it's a misidentified uh, underwater panther. Mm -hmm. um, I cannot give this thing anything higher than a one for cunning and intelligence. Uh, just yeah. because. 100% <laughs> agree with you. You know, by Russell's account, it was a flying monster that loved eating Native Americans. Looking at it as tied to Native American history, it seems to be more of a, a symbol, you know, rather than a true entity, like maybe yeah. like a physical a physical being. I gave it a a one cunning and intelligence. Just it, it shows no it shows no cunning. <laughs> I guess for all intents and <laughs> yeah. purposes, it ended up being a picture, a painting. Yeah. So, uh, how about then impact on popular culture? I'm very interested on where you're sitting here. <laughs> for popular culture. I always like to look for any films, mm -hmm. and I looked up the Pius Albert movie, and I got back something that said Terror in the Skies, and I was like, whoa, oh, is okay. this an actual film? <laughs> and when I looked into it, it was just another one of those uh, typical J. Michael-style documentaries. Damn it. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, Damn it. The, yeah. the vein of our research. <laughs> yeah. The trailer itself is 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 interesting because it just talks about sightings of bird-like creatures. It kind of implies the Mothman. It says the Mothman of Illinois kind of thing, they call it. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. and it, do um, it doesn't have its own legs to stand on. It has to <laughs> piggyback on the Mothman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And... <laughs> And uh, the cover, I guess the cover of the movie showed like pterodactyl creatures. So I'm like, oh, it's like dinosaurs. Uh -huh. They want the dinosaur like theory. Yep. It. Yeah. So, but yeah, I, I, that's not really a film. It's not a, it didn't, it wasn't like a, a, yeah. a scripted yep. film. So, so there's no movies on it. There, uh, there is a um, piece of music oh, yeah. commissioned, by, commissioned by the Alton High School Band. I guess to celebrate the creature. It's called Flight of the Piazza by Robert Sheldon. So any high school band music teachers that want to perform this thing <laughs> can go ahead and get it. Um, 
the intro to the uh, the score kind of re, uh, re repeats the the John Russell tale of of the Chief Owatoga and you know taking down the the creature. But so that's the first time I've actually encountered you know music composed about this specific thing. Yeah, about any of the, versus, the cryptids. Yeah, versus you know pop music that references the creature. Yeah. <laughs> that we still weren't able to really figure out that darn yeah. Mongolian tra- tourism site. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's again. It's, this is a very uh, I think a pattern to most of the cryptids where they're they're a lot of their pop culture is localized. You know, I don't know much about it outside of Alton, Illinois, mm-hmm. but it looks like they make a big deal about it in that area. Yeah, it's kind it's of like pl- it seems to play it up like the Rhinelander with the Hodag Alton with yeah. the Piasa. And um, there's quite a few books on the Piasa legend, one called, again, Flight of the Piasa, and some other books that are more pornographic than others. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Surprisingly. <laughs> Pretty sure the, the Google preview, I, I mean, maybe I didn't go through the whole thing, but I didn't see any mention of the Pius Albert. It was just the guy trying to find some beer and, and you know, betting some women. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, okay. I believe we're talking about the gunsmith, right? <laughs> the gunsmith. <laughs> Over yeah. 10 million printed, I think. Or <laughs> said. Yeah. Just a bizarre book. <laughs> uh yeah i gave this one a one i'm sort of on the same page here i uh, couldn't find much i did find another book outside of the gunsmith and his uh james bond like uh seduction of women so this one was is called xandra Voorhees and the piazza wand it was in 2019 it's a young adult book and i have a description of it here because i thought it was pretty intriguing so it says Xandra Voorhees has never been one to stand aside and let injustice prevail. So when she moves to the New World in 1780 to set up shop as a wandmaker, she gets herself into trouble much more often than her profession should account for. In between trips to the countryside for wand infusion materials, which she acquires from the many mysterious magical creatures that roam about the New World, she finds herself freeing slaves, helping native tribes who have come down with the smallpox, and even getting caught up in a battle that turns out to be part of a much bigger war, which has only just begun. Then comes the day when a mysterious stranger asks for a wand infused with a fang sliver from the dreaded Piasa bird. When Xandra enters the bird's lair, she has unknowingly set in motion a series of events which will lead her to creating the greatest wand ever made in the new world and will end in a final confrontation with an old enemy. It says, in this debut novel by M.T. Fisher, join Xandra on her breathtaking adventure as she overcomes prejudice, magical beasts, and a much bigger foe who threatens to undo everything Xandra has done for the downtrodden in the new world. <laughs> young young adult books, big money, getting in on the Piasa action. I'm totally going to buy that book. Everyone's always looking for the next <laughs> Harry Potter to uh, to produce. So <laughs> yep. I think people just grab for everything, but maybe it's good. And I, I think... Know. I think there's definitely a, a, a market for a film of this kind. Mm-hmm. I don't know why there hasn't been any Paisa films, yeah. even uh, indie films. Mm-hmm. Every every cryptid we have looked at, you know, has very much deserved its own <laughs> iteration of a movie, I believe. And yeah, 
as we've shown, very easy to write. <laughs> we make them up on the, <laughs> on the fly. Yep. Beyond the, the gunsmith book that you spoke about, um, in 1896, there was a collection of poems about the Piasa that came out. I thought that was pretty neat. Um, when I looked at it, I could only find actually a handful in that text that actually dealt with the Piasa. A lot of them were just uh, moving out west sort of poems that sort of manifest destiny, I guess. Oh. The other thing that everyone's always looking for in in uh, pop culture, beer. There, once again, the uh, stay strong. A beer from XL Brewing it is the Piasa beer. Uh, it is a classic American Pilsner, 5% ABV. And they even suggest pairing it with German cuisine, spicy food, or sharp cheeses. So <laughs> I don't know why, wow. but they do. <laughs> Beyond that, I, I, this one was a real struggle for uh, you know, <laughs> impact on pop culture. Specifically, I think, too, the emphasis on it seems to be about the trying to decode who painted the damn thing, not yeah. the, uh, I guess validity of it being a true creature so that might be the disconnect uh here for the impact on pop popular culture it's it yeah they're more centered on trying to find the true uh originators and nobody's ever thought to think <laughs> ever stopped to think hey does this creature you know exist or any sightings of it or anything of that nature it's hard to, uh, I guess, you know, look at the creature and every everybody in this, like in my research, it, it just goes back time and time again to just people having such a prejudiced look at Native American indigenous peoples of having like such contempt that there is no way that these people could have done anything of value that would yeah. help anybody or like of anything cultural. And it's, it's, it gets really frustrating when you see that time and time again. Yeah, it, like that book that I mentioned, the uh, the races of the ancient. Mm -hmm. It mentions how they cannot essentially trust the Native American oral tradition of of their culture or whatever. So instead, they just dig around and you know excavate areas and and then pick out their broken pottery and just make crazy speculation like hey is this phoenician or indian or egyptian or chinese uh-huh yeah. <laughs> because because it's like oh well you could just ask the the native no 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 we can't ask them we cannot trust their oral traditions <laughs> for whatever uh, yeah <laughs> it's like that. <laughs> these people cannot be trusted they're they're if it is not well, written it must be a lie but you know but I, I, it's 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 interesting because they they kind of they kind of made the equation that you know you cannot learn anything about the Western European culture based on their fairy tales or mother goose stories. But I, I think otherwise, I think you can learn a lot from them based on those tales. You know, you can learn their moral code and, yeah. and you know, the practices of the time, but I guess they, the authors felt otherwise. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, yeah, those things that, yeah, don't look at those in, in our culture. Cause apparently no <laughs> morality or like genuine thought went into creation of those stories that's a, a dumb way to look at it and it's yeah it's the same way with uh, like native american uh, oral tradition like if it's if it's not written down it's not real or it's not true yeah. but look at john russell wrote it down had it published all fake so <laughs> like, yeah come on yeah 
So before we go really off the rails and <laughs> and get on our soapboxes about this, let's add up our scores here for the rubric of power, get back on track. So for me, I had uh, a total of 11, and you had a total of 9.999999, right? <laughs> Nines yep. forever, as far as I can see. <laughs> so we'll put that into the rubric of power, see what comes out in our algorithm. And looking at it, so the positive entity, it has a total of a 10.495. So look at that. Not enough to dethrone the new reigning defending champion, the Hodak. Really nowhere close to it. But no. 10.495, uh, maybe off the top of my head, above Hogzilla, lower than Mothman? Am I right? It. It is it is above uh, Hogzilla, yes. It is below. It is above Mothman. Oh, okay. It is it is below the Goatman. Goatman, the yeah, the forgotten entity here. Uh, what did Goatman <laughs> have? Ten point five. Oh wow, my gosh! Just by <laughs> yeah, the skin of Goatman's nose does he beat uh, <laughs> Paisa? Yeah. So uh, another ranking complete here. Uh, Paisa, very intriguing entity to look at. I, I very much enjoyed the research on this one. Just looking at the length of this episode, so did you. <laughs> <laughs> Any last words before we paint the Piasa onto the limestone for the last time? Um, you mentioned it. The research uh, going into this one was very fun. I mean, I did not expect to find all this stuff out about the origins of the creature. Yeah, the, I was, the, the, like the I contested was, origins of the creature really the, right? yeah yeah i was i was going into it, it's like okay it's another cryptid it's gonna you know i'm sure there's some native american um origins but it would have evolved over time and then there's this you know the standard formula but to find out that this one of the accounts is completely made up another one believes another theory hinges on the theory that the chinese explorers came to america before columbus did and if that ever and most historians just say that that is just bs so mm -hmm. that already falls apart so with that being a fake then the piazza being a dragon a chinese dragon is also a fake but the, you know these people continue to push that that out there and and i just think it's, it's just fascinating how these things have evolved and how they can branch off from one single originator, you know, the underwater panther, mm -hmm. and then just have all these different creatures come out of that. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting thing that um, for a Native American entity, that the Native American portion of it played into it very little as far as like the theories of of where it came from, just so related to so many different other. Uh, civilizations rather than the tribes that were in Mississippi area of the time. Uh, I guess one thing that I, I just thought was interesting too was just the really the the depiction, the pictograph, so uh, of the Paisa, of it being you know the notably the largest pictograph in North America. I just thought that was a, a cool thing that, and that I truly had never even heard of it before. Yeah, even though I guess it was lost, but. Uh, the city of Alton and residents there have tried so hard to bring it back as a part of their history. Um, never have heard of it, never seen pictures of it before. You know, I guess back in in school, learning about the exploration of the Mississippi with Marquette and Juliet, you don't really hear 
probably like several paragraphs and that's pretty much all you learn about the the history of exploration there before you go on to something bigger like really i guess the contributions of french peoples into the exploration of america i don't think is talked too much about it's always so much conquered by english uh, exploration rather yeah. than anything else so i don't know a, a very cool entity to learn about i hope everyone enjoyed uh, our dive into the piasa entity hope you learned something of value <laughs> that it wasn't the chinese damn it <laughs> <laughs> everything you learn about the chinese just throw it away i think it intriguing of that I guess I don't 100% disagree that the Chinese have ever could have explored or the Japanese ever could have explored to the western coasts of uh, of America. I think there's some some arguments there but t- to go to the depths of you know the Mississippi River and then take the time in your explorations to then it would have to be over several weeks I would think to gather the supplies to then paint this creature onto the stone face to you know make the scaffolding or the rigging to be able to get there to uh, to paint it unless at that time there is such a you know broken mississippi river that was super <laughs> like flooded or i don't know that it was just such an issue that you could easily get there to paint it and then leave no other trace besides this one painting as a chinese explorer and then leave like put so much effort into one thing it's makes zero sense to me <laughs> yeah like yeah, I, I just see, i just see no reason why a explorer would waste so much time doing that with no clear purpose like even if it was as they were arguing like a tomb like guardian of a tomb so there would have to be some sort of tomb there or something yeah and uh, as armstrong mentioned in his book with the state prison being there they they mined the hell out of the limestone anyway so they would have found something I think that would have been a, probably an even bigger story if they found some sort of Chinese tomb in Alton, Illinois, uh, digging in a limestone. Yeah. I don't know. Well, maybe maybe the, the Chinese emperor thought the same thing. That's why he destroyed Destroy all the evidence. Destroy all records, yep. It's like, why did you guys go here? <laughs> Forget that. <laughs> they get back, they tell him the story. He's like, you did what? <laughs> <laughs> Piasa entity, any lasting thoughts? I guess, you know, just the idea of you know, these cryptids in general, like maybe it's worth looking into their history before, you know, just going out and trying to find one or whatever. Cause you know, it, it could be the case that this is all made up and you're wasting your time or whatever. Uh, some dude in the 1800s wrote a creative <laughs> story and <laughs> framed an entity for all of history after the fact. And it would have been a waste of time to go there looking for something in the skies. Yep. But I'll be damned if I'm sure History Channel didn't do some sort of uh, monster quest <laughs> trying to look oh, for, for it, sure, I'm for sure. sure. <laughs> for sure. Cool entity. Uh, I guess then maybe a, a final stamp on the Piasa would be if you could tweet out to Jonathan Frakes on Twitter. Get yep. enough. At Jonathan S. Frakes. Yep, get enough of us to tweet <laughs> out to him. See if he can weigh in on on this entity is it a bird is it a dragon were the chinese in illinois uh prior to the you know 1492 <laughs> maybe he knows <laughs> yeah and he's just he waiting for know. somebody to ask him to share that wealth of knowledge and make sure to tweet at us as well at cracking curios and 
any questions you send to um Jonathan Frakes, make sure you hashtag him with a cracked cryptids. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Hashtag. Join us next time on another episode of Cracking Cryptids and Curios as we now turn our attention to a bit of Slavic folklore in search of the origins of the entity of Baba Yaga. So we're looking into this supernatural being who may be just an old woman or is it some sort of disguise? I don't know. We'll find out. Piasaw, we out. <laughs> Fly away. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the Chinese. This has been an I am actually traveling back into time production. This is my sad song. <laughs>